Chad Post was a friend of mine at Birmingham Southern. He was a baseball player and was known at the college as quite a slugger. So distinguished were his exploits on the diamond that he was the subject of an article in Sports Illustrated. But perhaps not for the reason you would expect. His story was in that part of Sports Illustrated known as this week's sign that the apocalypse is upon us. <laughs> you see, Chad, during a game against a regional opponent, teed off on a hanging curveball, sending it over the fence and out of the stadium and into the parking lot where it smashed the windshield of a car. Whose car was it? the pitcher who had hung that curveball. <laughs> that bit of Sports Illustrated, the signs of the apocalypse, are its way of conveying those ridiculous stories, those tales too true to be true, in a way that leave us questioning if they are true, then maybe the end of the world is really here. They're usually stories about the athlete who tore his LCL while he was putting on his cleats, or the team that banned high fives because pink eye was running rampant through the clubhouse. <laughs> but if you read Luke chapter 12, the chapter before this Sunday's gospel lesson, you might get the impression that Jesus too likes that kind of apocalyptic interpretation. Jesus spends most of Luke 12 telling his disciples to keep watch and be on their guard. He lists these foreboding signs that God's judgment is imminent, that the end of the world is coming. And when he gets to the end of chapter 12, Jesus, on quite a roll, chastises the crowd, saying to them, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why don't you know how to interpret the present time, this moment of God's judgment? And so when we turn the page to chapter 13 and we get to this gospel lesson, it seems that some of the people in the crowd decided to take Jesus at his word and try some of that apocalyptic interpretation that he had been asking them to do. Some in the crowd said to him, Jesus, did you hear about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, implying, it seems, that somehow God had had a hand in their untimely death. We don't really know much about what happened except what Luke tells us. None of the other gospel accounts recalls this moment for us, and there's no other historical account of this martyrdom. But the text suggests to us that some Jewish people from Galilee, which is where Jesus was from, had come to Jerusalem to do the thing that Jewish people did at that time when they came to Jerusalem to sacrifice the appointed offering, and that in the act of doing this, Pilate, who was known as a brutal governor, had them murdered, 
perhaps to send a signal to the other Jews in the community that they better not try anything funny. That leads me to wonder whether perhaps it was the Passover, that national celebration when God's people tell the stories of how long ago they had broken the yoke of oppression of slavery that had been put upon them. And it would make sense, perhaps, in that setting for Pilate to send a clear signal that he wouldn't tolerate any funny business. But for whatever reason, Pilate has them murdered and the crowd seizes upon the ironic coincidence that these people practicing their faith are murdered as a sign that maybe they were unfaithful. Maybe there was a hidden sin that God was punishing them for, kind of like an angry preacher offering a fiery sermon about adultery and then dying of a heart attack right in the middle of it, leaving the whole congregation wondering what he wasn't telling them. <laughs> but Jesus listens to the crowd and says to them, no. No, that's not how it works. That's not what I mean. That's not how God works. And to get his point across, he pulls from a story in the recent news and says, you remember back when that tower of Siloam fell, that terrible construction accident that killed 18 people. Do you think that they were worse sinners than anybody else living in Jerusalem? No, of course not, because that's not how God works. But unless you repent, you'll perish just as they did. Jesus wants the people to see that repentance is everybody's business. Because when judgment comes, it finds all of us. When it comes to proclaiming the message of God's judgment, it's always easier to point a finger at someone else, isn't it? Preachers who talk about repent, 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 they're usually talking about someone else, not themselves. Because when God comes to sort things out, it's not we who need sorting out, it's they who need fixing. They're the ones who need to be worried, not us, not us. I remember when I lived in Montgomery, Alabama, and a parishioner came up to me and explained to me his deeply held belief that God had sent Hurricane Katrina to wash the streets of the French Quarter clean from all the terrible sin in New Orleans. I wanted to tell him that actually the French Quarter wasn't really affected by Hurricane Katrina. <laughs> but I knew that wouldn't get anywhere. Gene was a man who could squeeze more hatred and bigotry into five feet two inches than anybody else I'd ever met. And I never found a way to get Gene to see his own need for repentance. That was my failure. All of us must repent. Because the truth is that when we're worried about somebody else's repentance, we forget that it's our job too. When we're trying to get the speck out of someone else's eye, we can't even notice that there's a plank in our own. Jesus offers a parable to help us see that truth, the need for all to repent. The story of the fig tree, the poor fig tree, 
After three years, no figs. So the owner says, cut it down. It's wasting the earth in which it is planted. But the gardener says, sir, would you give it another chance? Just one more year. One more year. Let me dig around it. Let me put manure on it. Let's see if I can get it to grow figs next year. If it does, that's great. If not, you can cut it down then. In the Hebrew Bible, fig trees often represent God's people because the prophets want God's people to ask, are we bearing fruit? And Jesus picks up that image to invite the crowd to ask that question, not of someone else, but of themselves. Are we bearing fruit? God's judgment is imminent. The signs of that judgment are all around us, and it's bigger than pink eye or a baseball smashing through a windshield. It's faithful worshipers being murdered by a terrorist when they pray. It's another plane crashing minutes after takeoff. It's a cyclone killing hundreds of people in southeastern Africa. It's walls and guns and overdose and hashtag me too and all the tragedy and trouble and turmoil that we experience. God's judgment is right here. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to spend our time worried about how somebody else is living her life? Or will we look at ourselves? Will we turn that light inward and ask, am I bearing fruit? Are you bearing fruit? We're all living in that extra year of grace. And that means that the time to bear fruit isn't tomorrow, but now. Are you bearing fruit? Jesus' words to us are sharp. They're harsh. Unless you repent, you will perish just as they did. But what does it mean to repent? Not to wallow in misery, but to turn around, to come back, to return to God. In agricultural terms, it means to turn over the soil, to amend it with manure so that the fig tree might bear fruit. Are you bearing fruit? If not, come back to God. Seek God and ask God for help. Let God bring your life to flourishing. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.